seated. I guess it was 10th grade, 10th grade, uh, that the worst thing that ever happened to me in my life happened. I was a uh, sophomore in high school, captain of the wrestling team, captain, cross-country team, a man growing in stature, wisdom in stature, as would be said of Jesus later. And I went to my guidance counselor to do what had become routine. In my school, in Bartow High School, if you took four years of agriculture classes, you didn't have to take a science class, which, for me, was the most important thing at the time, avoiding anything related to math or science. And so I go to enroll in this agriculture class, only to find my guidance counselor who told me that the class was full. And instead of participating in what was really a joke of a class, I mean, we sat out and we boiled corn and ate corn on the cob in class. This is honestly what we did. We ate corn on the cob all semester. Instead of this coaster class, he enrolled me in child development, home economics. And I was pretty convinced at that moment that life was over because I had a reputation to uphold. I had people who were going to look to me and ask me questions about why I was first carrying around an egg in a basket, pretending it to be a child, and later given some hideous doll that we had to take care of for a week in a, in a mock marriage to someone who was honestly quite repulsive to have to spend time with. These were things that were on my horizon that I was terrified to have to deal with, and I was convinced that life was over. Until one day, in the midst of my tragedy, in walked a stunning, blonde-headed, brown-eyed young lady. And from that moment forward, I had a reason to go to class. Cared nothing about embryonic development, about proper nursing techniques, or how to put a diaper on a child. But I wanted to get to know this young lady named Jennifer. End of the story is I ended up marrying her, and she's seated in the back of the room. But my point is this, and, and really what I want us to look at this morning is how do we go about answering the question that you and I have faced in various times in our life, what possible good can come from this? Now, listen, that's a silly example. That's a lighter example. That's something that's easy to start a Sunday morning message off with. But the reality is this. I've got things right now. I've got things that I bring to the Father on a daily basis. My assumption is you do as well, where we say to him, Father, what are you doing here? What good can come from this? I don't see your hand. I don't see how you're moving. I don't know what you're doing. What good can come from this? And how, friends, are we as believers to 
to respond in the face of such sufferings. This is a theme that runs throughout 1 Peter. This is something that the apostle is very concerned with expressing to his audience that he's writing to. And in fact, as I read this more and more, and as, as I thought Mike did a really good job a couple weeks ago pointing out in his introduction to the book of Romans, that so often our ancient authors will give you a preview of what the rest of the book is about. And, and really that opening paragraph that most of us, me at least, tends to skim right through to get to that really first section where he's really going to start teaching us something. But we can't do that because it's in these initial verses, I think, that they're laying the foundation for what they want to discuss throughout the rest of the letter. And so for us this morning, I want us to take a look at verses 1 and 2, and I want us to examine really four phrases that need to be unpacked a little bit. And so what we'll do is we're we're going to try to unpack these four phrases, and then we're going to kind of piece them together into what I hope is a coherent message about what the Apostle Peter is saying to a people not terribly unlike ourselves. Let me read these first few verses again, and, and, and let's see if we can highlight some of these phrases. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, hmm. who are found in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood. Those are the four things. The elect exiles of the dispersion, the foreknowledge of God the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus and the sprinkling of his blood. Let's start first with this idea of the elect exiles of the dispersion. You know, that's a technical term. It's this idea, this elect exiles of the dispersion. This dispersion in the Greek is the Greek word diaspora. It is what happens when a people are scattered. At various times throughout the the history of Israel, God's people have been scattered. And here is the Apostle Peter uses the term, it's a technical term, that Greek-speaking Jews would apply to any Jew who is no longer living in Palestine for one reason or another. The most common or maybe the most famous idea of when this diaspora happened happened in the Babylonian captivity. You'll remember after being held in captivity for years and years and years, the people finally receive word that they can return back to their homeland. And many of them do. That's where we get the stories of Ezra and Nehemiah and the return of God's people back to their homeland. But you know, many people didn't return. Many people decided to stay. Many people moved elsewhere. They had been gone for for years and years. There was not much left to return to. And so many of them stayed and and were scattered. And as a result, God's children were no longer localized in one geographic area. I mean, friends, we're talking about at this time in, in the history of Israel, the single most cataclysmic event that they could have experienced. The temple was ransacked and destroyed. The locus of the worship of their God had been destroyed and they'd been carried off into a pagan world. What good can come from this? And God receives word 
They can return, and some return, but some scatter. And because of that scattering, something really neat happens. When the Apostle Paul begins his ministry, when Barnabas begins his ministry, when Peter begins his ministry, and you read in the book of Acts about the gospel going out into these various cities in Asia Minor, down through the Mediterranean, there are Jews present because of this diaspora that has happened. And so the apostle comes and he finds these people ready to respond to the gospel when they hear it proclaimed. This tragic event is really one of the seedlings that began the explosion of the church. And it's really into this audience, this group of elect exiles. Now, what is this message? This is who these people are. These people whom God has placed into a particular area for a particular purpose. What is it that this message is that Peter is sending to them? And let me suggest to you it's three, three parts, a three-part message. Here's the first part of the message that Peter is announcing to these elect exiles. The first thing is this, that God knows where and who they are. That God knows where and who they are. We read in there that it is according to the foreknowledge of God that these people are where they are. Now, what does that mean? What is this foreknowledge? This foreknowledge is speaking about God's infinite ability to be able to know and understand what life is like for these people in the various cities that they find themselves in. His foreknowledge refers both to their election as adopted sons and daughters of God and also to their status as exiles in the community. Think about this for a minute. When we speak about God's foreknowledge, when we speak about what it means that God has selected for himself a people upon whom he will shower his love and abundance and mercy down upon, we are saying that the God in this situation and circumstances is sovereign enough, is wise enough to know who they are and what they deal with. You know what their world is like right now? Peter writes this, and the scholars are in a little bit of debate, but it's somewhere between the year 60 A.D. and the year 67, 68 A.D. So when this letter is penned. For you Roman history buffs in the room, all two of you probably, who's on the throne in Rome? Nero. Have you heard of him? He's a nutcase. If you haven't, I mean, this guy who is famous for his persecution of the church, who's famous for his hatred of Christians, 
for, for using them, as, as, as history would say, as human torches to light his garden. This is the man that's on the throne. And in these cities scattered about Asia Minor is the circumstance that these people find themselves in. And Peter is in Rome, some say a year, two at the most, from his own execution at the hands of Nero. Crucified, as tradition says, upside down because he didn't want to die like his Lord died. Two years outside of that, Peter is in the seedbed of hatred for Christianity, writing to people who now are beginning to experience the effects of what a life lived for Jesus will cause. Because, friends, if we begin to think seriously about this calling that Christ has put into our life, it begins to affect the way that you think. And when your thought process are affected, it begins to affect the way that we live our lives. Or at least it should. And these people who have heard the gospel proclaimed, who have given their life to follow Jesus, are beginning to experience the sideways glances, the social ostracism, the persecutions that come when you try to live differently than what the world is calling you to act like. And God knows this. His foreknowledge speaks to this. His election calling them to salvation reminds them of this because he has selected them a particular person, a particular place and time for them to be living out their life. And friends, the same is true for you and I. If God is big enough and in his foreknowledge is capable of orchestrating these things, then then friends, let's not think that we are beyond that scope as well. I can stand here with full confidence and assurance and tell you that Jesus knows your circumstances. He knows where you are and he knows even more importantly who you are. What things are particularly fearful for you? The things that seek to steal your joy quicker than other things do. The way in which you are wired because he wired you that way. His foreknowledge refers both to our election as children of his and our status in exile, and he knows where we are. Now, let me just briefly very briefly, because I am not the expert to be pontificating upon the finer points of election. We'll leave that to the boss man here who usually does it. But let me say this. When we think about what it means to be chosen or selected or elected, we most naturally think of that in terms of something that we ourselves have accomplished. I got, I got picked first in pickup basketball or Maybe on the kickball field, you know, I was particularly good. And so I was selected or elected or chosen with the first pick. I don't know if you're playing fantasy football, but in the first pick of the draft, if you didn't take Adrian Peterson, you were probably nuts. Because based upon his merit as a running back, he's going to score you big points this year. When we think about election, that's generally what our mind goes to, is something that is based upon the accomplishments that you have made. It is not so. 
with our Father. In fact, if anything, it's the opposite. It's the opposite when we think about what it means to be elected or chosen. It should not result in something that drives up the pride within us, but in fact should force us in humility to confess. Not why not them, Lord, but why me? Why me? There's nothing in me that merits this. Friends, don't ever make the mistake of thinking that the people who walk up these stairs and stand in this place are any more deserving of the love of the Father than you who have never had the opportunity. There's a reason why Paul proclaimed that I am the chief among sinners. So when we speak about election, friends, we're not speaking about something that is merited something that is earned and never, ever, ever should result in some sort of spiritual superiority that we lord over other people. That is wrong as wrong can be. God knows where and who we are because God has put them in that place. There is it is safe to assume then that there is a specific reason why they're there. There is a specific reason as to why they're experiencing these things. And the reason is this. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. See, the reason that these folks are beginning to experience the persecutions that they're experiencing is because God is sanctifying them by the power of his Holy Spirit. Now, that's a big church word. And I, the, most of the time, I don't get to deal with church people. I deal with, with kids who don't go to church. And so we have to translate a lot of church things into phrases that people can understand. And so let me do that real quick. When we talk about what it means to be sanctified, what are we talking about? We're going to define sanctification for our purposes this morning as the process of looking more and more like Jesus every day. That's what it means to be in the process of sanctification. Another big church word is this word justified. Justified means being declared righteous before a God who is holy. It is that moment where he says, you know what? You're okay with me. You're okay with me, not because of what you have done, but because of the work of my son Jesus, you are you are justified. You are okay with me. And now that you are justified, we now start making you look more and more like Jesus looks. That's what it means to be sanctified. It is this refining process that we go through. And how is it accomplished? Listen to this. How is our sanctification accomplished? Two things. Peter tells us here, that it is accomplished through our sufferings and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Write down Romans chapter 5, verse 3. We don't have time to go there and look at it in detail. But in Romans chapter 5, Paul expounds on it a little bit more. He says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit. 
It is a marriage of the things that we're experiencing and the working of the Holy Spirit to bring us to a place where we look more and more like Jesus every day. Friends, why are you where you are? Why are you experiencing what you're experiencing? Whether it's a difficult home life or a marriage with two people fighting at each other or problems at work or money problems, why are you there? One, because God, as an elected exile, has placed you there. And in that place, He is refining you. He is shaping you. He is molding you to look more and more like His Son, Jesus. That is how it works. It is this marriage between the sufferings that we endure, the difficulties that we experience, and then this amazing way that the Holy Spirit moves and guides us in the process. That's why... That's why Jesus said to the disciples before he ascended, listen, it's better that I go so that the Holy Spirit will come. And if I'm just being honest, when I read that, I thought, no, that's crazy. Look, there is no way that Jesus not being here is better than if he actually left. There's no way that's better. And then I went yesterday to watch the University of Florida pound the Troy Trojans. And Malone has killed my boy Tebow for the last couple of days, and so I will stand up for him now. I watched Tim Tebow play quarterback with excellence yesterday, and I thought, if only I could be on the sidelines and I could watch him run the offense, if I could watch him call the play, if I could watch him take the snap, and deliver the ball. If I could watch him do this, I could play quarterback better than I do now. Which is pretty pathetic. <laughs> if I could only watch him do it. And then, as I'm praying and thinking about this on the drive home, I'm thinking, how am I going to... Okay, could I learn, could I benefit, could I have value added into my quarterbacking abilities by spending time with Tim Tebow and watching him run the offense and mimicking what I see him do? Could I learn like that? Yes. But you know what would be better? If somehow, miraculously, the spirit of Tim Tebow could indwell my body and then walk to the center take the snap, and run people over like nobody's business. If only that could happen. Forget watching and learning and taking notes. I want that. As much as people like to profess his ability to walk on water, that ain't happening anytime soon. But, because Jesus went away, And sent his spirit to you and to I who have yielded and surrendered our lives. That, as miraculous and as crazy as it sounds, is what has happened. Friends, look, I know we don't think much about what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. But listen to me when I tell you. We have at our disposal a resource and a powerful so much more tremendous than we know because Jesus has given us his spirit to guide us, to indwell us, to give us the power to resist temptation, to give us the power to beat back unbelief, to give us the power to face whatever 
we as elected exiles experience in this place that is not our home. Jesus knows who and where we are. The reason we are there is so that we may be refined to look like his son. That's the second part of this message. And the final thing is this. That while we are where we are and we are experiencing what we are experiencing, he wants us to be obedient. To those elected exiles of the dispersion, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ. I wish there was some greater point or purpose that I could sit down with each one of you and share with you in detail and in specifics what God's remedy for whatever particular circumstance you're facing is, you know. I wish I could do that, but I can't. But what I can tell you is that what he wants from you in this moment, what he wants from me as I face these moments, is obedience. I don't know what that means for you. I kind of know what it means for me, but I don't want to do it. (laughs) What does it mean for you in this set of circumstances? Whatever popped into your head when I first started this whole message about whatever it is you're facing, that thing, what he wants from you in that is to be obedient. That may mean stepping out on faith and doing something that God's called you to do, that you have chickened out on doing up until this point. It may mean ceasing to do something that you know is destructive. It may mean a difficult conversation. It may mean a personal sacrifice. I don't know. But I bet you probably do. And what he wants from us in these moments is for you and I to learn to be obedient. Because, friends, it is in the midst of our suffering that our obedience speaks volumes. Let me say that again. It is in the midst of our suffering that our obedience speaks volumes. Hey, man, it's easy to be obedient when life is grand, right? Everything's a bed of roses, no problems, nothing difficult to face. It's easy to be obedient. But when the times are tough, it is then that our obedience speaks volumes. About four years ago, I sat in a funeral for my, for my wife's best friend's sister. 16, 17-year-old girl named Veronica was killed in a drunk driving accident in Hardy County. And Jennifer and I went to the funeral because her sister, her Jennifer's best friend, was obviously affected by her sister's death. And I watched a man named Bruce Durrance, friend of mine, father of this young lady who was tragically killed, stand in a pulpit not unlike this, in a church not unlike this, presiding over the body of his dead 17-year-old daughter and tell every person in that room that God will be glorified because of this young lady's death. 
I had about 15 people that morning respond to the invitation to trust Christ with their life the way that Veronica had trusted Christ with their life. And in that moment of obedience, in that moment of inexpressible suffering and sorrow, Bruce was obedient. And at least 15 people's lives, life were changed. It is in our suffering that our obedience speaks volumes. I could tell you about being in Katrina disaster relief and watching people who had lost everything helping other people who had lost everything. And the testimony that they shared. The opportunity that we have to be obedient and to testify about what Jesus has done is one reason. The other reason is this. That in the midst of our suffering, as we are obedient, we are participating in the covenant that Jesus has established with us. It says, for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. That is covenantal language, friends. That is, that is language of the covenant. It is a language that speaks of forgiveness, that speaks of healing, that speaks of restoration and renewal, and that is what is offered to you and to I as we are obedient in the place where Jesus has us. I'll close with this. I don't know. I don't know. What it is, where you are, how the Lord is moving and acting in your life. But as elected exiles, as people who have been called out of the world, called to pursue a life with God, placed into an environment that is not your home, that will not be until Jesus returns and restores all of this stuff to the way that he wants it, until such a time we are exiled in this place, working and moving and doing. And as we experience these things that God is allowing into our life to refine us, to sanctify us, to make us more and more conformed to the image of his son, in those times our call is to be obedient. Whatever that obedience is that brings us closer to Jesus. And as we do, we participate in this great covenant relationship that he has established in which he says, I will be your God and I will always be your God. And you will always be my people. And I love you and I will care for you. Let's pray.